Welcome to another conversation on Illumin for Parents, this time about the concept that both bravery and anxiety are contagious. I'm speaking with two of our leaders in the student care team here at Girls Grammar. Both of them are heads of house. Miss Hazel Boltman is also a maths teacher and Miss Ruth Jans is an English teacher. Both of them have also had year level coordination experience so there's a lot of experience in working with students between them. To begin Ruth and Hazel, could you share a little bit about your background with us and particularly your role in our student care program? Thank you. Well, I am an English teacher first and foremost, but I'm also part of the student care team. And as I didn't have any psychology degree in my background, but I was very fascinated by the topic, I have started a Masters of Mental Health to help me understand some of the theory and gain some empirically supported strategies and practices and how to support students navigating adolescence. And Hazel, tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, your approach to your role in student care. My role is just a little bit different in the sense that I love looking at the whole child rather than looking at individual issues as they arise. So I think it's about taking the child where they are and making sure that they're really able and capable to cope with the difficulties and the experiences that come up. So it's looking at how we can best help them to be their best self as they move their way through the school. We hear such a lot about anxiety these days. Ruth, can you talk us through what anxiety is? What do we know about how it affects the brain? And what's that difference between feeling unsure or nervous, which is obviously quite a natural experience for all of us, and feeling anxious? Well, first of all, it's really important to reference that everyone experiences anxiety, but at varying levels. And of course, there's a difference between the clinical experience and the every person experience. And I'm really talking about the regular experience of this emotion. So... It's, it's actually necessary for us to feel some anxiety and stress and anyone who has performed in a musical concert or play or entered a sporting competition knows that a little bit of anxiety and nerves is actually necessary to give that boost to be able mm. to rise to the occasion. The interesting thing about anxiety is that it has served a biological purpose and in many ways it still continues to do so. So Hazel and I went to a conference in 2019 called Building Brave by Karen Young and Michelle Mitchell and this is really where we've gained a lot of our understanding about how to uh, work with anxiety. And at this conference it was explained that the amygdala, which is part of our limbic system in our brain, is its purpose is to detect danger. And historically, it served that purpose to, for us to escape the saber-toothed tiger, for example. But today, more often than not, the danger is no longer physical, it's actually psychological. The problem is that the amygdala doesn't actually differentiate between the two. So it treats psychological dangers, such as humiliation, failure or rejection, as a physical threat. And then when that threat is perceived, the brain actually sends a neurochemical cocktail designed to give us that advantage of extra energy, extra speed or faster reaction time. However, if the threat isn't physical, this cocktail has no purpose and it ends up actually making us feel worse. That is a very clear articulation of it that I think many of us can identify with and certainly understand. But for you, Hazel, I'm sure you've witnessed students struggling with anxiety at different times. 
What are some of the most common side effects of this anxiety that you've seen students experience? Well, I think our most common one that we see is just the butterflies in the tummy and where there is a certain level of anxiety, perhaps with orals or with an assessment or an assignment they're handing in, and there's just this little anxiousness. But those girls are the ones that can cope with it and they manage to just pull themselves together and present something, which is the ideal situation for anxiety. That's what we want it to look like. Then we get the slightly more anxious girls and Usually at our school, avoidance is their technique that they like to use. They do get physical symptoms. They might feel ill in their tummies. They might feel like they can't make it to school. And they often stay away and avoid what is triggering their anxiety. And this is not really helpful as it doesn't allow the girls to learn to stand up to the fears and the anxieties that we have. And then the most difficult one we see is the, the actual panic attack where they're in full flight and they can't think at all. And we have to then work with the girls to bring them down to be able to refocus them, recenter them and eventually allow them to face a small part of their fear rather than the entire fear. So it's about stepping them down from the ledge and then bringing them back to where they're able to cope with just a small step forward. And I think as you've described there, we all understand that anxiety usually feels like a very negative emotion. But I'd also like both of you to perhaps touch on some new thinking that's emerging, and that's very much about how you reframe this very powerful feeling into something that is positive and can actually be learned from. So how is it possible, in your view, for anxiety to be rechanneled and perhaps used as a force for good, Ruth? Well, it's really about helping students and families families understand that anxiety is an opportunity to be brave. We need to take away the shame and stigma and depathologize, and that means, you know, not to treat it as a medical disorder. So the important thing is to recognize how courage and anxiety works together. It helps to explain to our daughters that when we feel anxious about something, it's often because we're focusing on something important to us. It really means something to us. And it also helps to explain to them that their brains have a strong amygdala working to keep them safe. Karen Young referred to it as a warrior or the fierce, not just the one that worries about things but actually fights to protect. So looking at the anxiety or the anxious response as they have a really healthy amygdala looking out for them. But the real purpose or the, the key here is to shift the focus from anxiety to being brave. And I think that is a really powerful um, image that you've created for us, the, these warriors and that it's our amygdala working actually to serve us. But it's a really hard thing actually to develop in real life and we can talk about it theoretically, encourage our students to see themselves in that way and to reframe it. All of that, of course, helps to develop resilience and, and we hear so much about the importance of resilience, educators, parents, we're often discussing it with our children, we're trying to develop the skills that they need. So that ability to, I guess, rebound from discouraging situations is something we need to develop. Tell us, I guess, Hazel, from your perspective, this skill that draws on, I guess, the inner strength of a person and that ability to just keep going in the face of sometimes great challenge, even significant adversity, how would you characterise that powerful relationship between anxiety and the courage that Ruth has just described? 
I think it's important not to see anxiety and courage as two sides to a coin, but really the two ends of a continuum. And we need to get girls moving from one side of the continuum towards the other, taking really small steps as they go. So we don't talk about taking a big leap of faith and we don't talk about facing your fear completely, but just very small steps in what you're doing. If we take big leaps or encourage them to, to do too much, it's actually counterproductive and can send them back a few steps. So what it is is just very small steps along the way. If, for example, they're really anxious about presenting an oral in front of the class, then they do it in front of a teacher or a few friends. Or if it's going to the party that weekend, take them to the party and let them stay for five minutes and then take them home. So it's not an entire event that they have to deal with. What I think we don't want to do is remove obstacles because as soon as we remove the obstacle, we then just send them sliding back into anxiety because next time they face it, it's the same obstacle all over again that they have to do. And I think that's what parents can really work with us in that, is not taking those obstacles away. We put the obstacles there to build the brave and that's what we want them to do, is to actually build those little steps of bravery rather than having a smooth path with nothing ahead of them which won't teach anything in the long run. Which is that concept of the snowplough mm. parent, isn't it? Taking away all obstacles and it's actually the unintended consequence of good intentions that is perhaps always not what you'd hope. So, Hazel, speaking about that and, and about, as you say, moving people along that continuum from anxiety to bravery, certainly we rely upon the research to guide what we do and we know, of course, that what we've seen in the research is that anxiety amongst adolescents is certainly growing in our society it's concerning and of course parents often ask what strategies can they employ to help their daughters or their children manage this anxiety so if I start with you Ruth we talk about our girls or I know you use this phrase getting their prefrontal cortex back online how do we go about that as parents Okay, well, first of all, it's really hard to do this. It can feel really hard because as parents and carers of young adults, we're really wired to want to protect them and to respond to their distress. Their anxiety is highly contagious. But on the other side, so is our bravery. So, you know, our mirror neurons in the brain, we're wired to pick up what we see other people experiencing. So whilst as a parent or as a carer of a young adult and we see their distress, we can feel distress. But it's reassuring to know that if we can be calm for them, then they will actually see our calm and our bravery and that's equally as contagious. So when our daughters are in the grip of an anxious moment, their prefrontal cortex is offline. They really can't think straight. So there's absolutely no point in reasoning or talking with them. What we need to do is interrupt the cycle. And uh, the best way to do that is the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is actually the from the Latin word wandering and it starts in the brain and it goes all the way down our body and our um, nervous system and it connects to all sorts of organs along the way and it's the the nerve that tells our brain to stop sending the neurochemical cocktail through our body. So we can trigger the vagus nerve by firmly rubbing in between the shoulder blades and by slow belly breathing. The other thing that interrupts the cycle is oxytocin and that's triggered by warmth and touch. So hugs or, you know, gentle pat. And then 
Also, the anxious mind isn't in the present moment, it's in the future. So helping our girls ground their brain in the moment by getting them to do some mindfulness activities, like what are three things that you can see or you can touch or you can hear? And um, it's also the amygdala, which is always looking out for danger, becomes even more hypersensitive when it's sleep deprived. So making sure that our girls are getting enough sleep at night and or even sending them to bed when they're tired, but they're worried about an assessment task they haven't done enough of and their natural urge is to stay awake until it's done. It's probably actually far more productive to send them to bed early and then get them up early in the morning to do some more work. You know, when our girls are in that grip, when they can't be brave and calm, we really just need to do that first for them. So we need to have mirror that's slow breathing. And actually, we need to use a sing-song voice when we're talking to them too, because whilst uh, we might think a, a low, calm voice is, is actually calming, the brain's actually wired to perceive that as a threat. So mm. using a little bit of a sing-song variation when we're, you know, the, s- similar to the way we talk to a baby mm. when it's distressed and, you know, we're going there, there, that sing-song voice is actually quite calming. And the last thing is that, the, as I said, the amygdala is looking for danger, but it's also looking for signs of safety. So we need to respond in a way that doesn't reinforce that whatever they're worrying about is really dangerous, a real threat. We need to show them that this is something that is overcomable. I did not know that about the, the voice, the higher pitch voice, because you do naturally revert to something calmer and deeper and steadier. Thank you for that wonderful insight, not just in terms of the strategies, but very practical skills. And I think that very warm hearted generosity that I hope we all express towards parents that it's hard and we know that it's hard. Hazel, one of the things I think we've already touched on with you, and if I could go back to it, avoidance of something or someone or a situation who makes us nervous obviously feels like a very natural and very normal and understandable way to manage anxiety. But could you articulate a little more fully perhaps why it is that that avoidance of situations that make us feel anxious is actually not the way to get stronger and to move forward? Well, I think the avoidance is an excellent strategy if we actually are in danger. If something is not right, if you feel that you're at an event or a party that's unsafe, avoidance is the best strategy. So our system does work for what it was designed for, and there are times when avoidance is the perfect strategy. But for most times, because of our modern-day society, it's not actually the best way. Most of our anxiety-provoking situations are not life-threatening. But what it does every time we avoid something is it burns a neural pathway that then tells us that this is the best method to avoid anxiety. And we do need to avoid anxiety. It's part of what our brains are designed to do. We need to get rid of the chemicals and find a way to take us from highly anxious to less anxious. But that neural pathway then becomes the preferred choice the next time we see something and the next time we see something. So it it kind of burns the wrong pathway in. So what we need to do is to take those small steps along that pathway that help them to not avoid, but to just take those tiny steps towards bravery. It doesn't take much. It just takes small steps. And it takes the parent being a little bit brave and being a little bit 
insistent on them doing something, or the teacher in our situation where we acknowledge that they are having a difficult time and that they are anxious, don't take it away from them. They are anxious, there's nothing we can do. We acknowledge their anxiety, but we don't make it our own, and we let them know that this is okay, we can manage this, we can deal with you, we can settle it, and then we can move them forward. Thank you, Hazel and Ruth, for your wise insights and that sense of trying to keep that vagus nerve within our control and, most importantly, to take those small steps, as you say, along the path from anxiety towards bravery and us as parents perhaps being brave and as calm as we possibly can be for our children. Thank you, Hazel and Ruth. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you, it was lovely. You have been listening to Illumin, a podcast by Brisbane Girls Grammar School. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play. And to learn more about the school, visit the website at www.bggs.qld.edu.au.